Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good morning, Corey. Good morning, Randy. Is it still 15 below over there in Idaho? No, it warmed up. It was 7 below this morning, so it's. Wow. Uh, I, I just about just wore a t-shirt on my road bike ride into work this morning. Yeah, well, it was 9 below here, so you must have sent it our way. That's right. It's heading east. How would you like to be an elk trying to make a living in this kind of weather? Man, just just tells you how tough those things are. Yeah. And then you take the fact that we as a society over the last, well, if you want to go back to when Columbus came in 1492, every year we grab a little more, little more, little more that once was the core habitat of elk or other wildlife. And so they're having to tough it out in this kind of condition on the marginal parts of their historic habitat. That's even more remarkable. Yeah. I mean, think if you forced a bunch of us sissy humans to have to live on the margins and in the in the tough spots of what our ancestors, you know, our great parent grandparents and you know i think about that you know we, we expect wildlife to live in these tough conditions on marginal habitat but yet we live such a plush life <laughs> in today's world we are the biggest bunch of pardon my french candy asses that <laughs> I, I i don't know i i I see it. You know, there's a group of about 70 elk that come down off the mountain to the farmer's field just south of me. And uh, it's nice to see them out there. Uh, But it's weird because they're walking around through a subdivision. It's like, oh, man. Incrementally, we're all part of the contributing factor to this. And people say, well, what do you want me to do, pack up and leave? No, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we got to do more. We, we live our lives, but let's do more for wildlife. Yeah, and, we, uh, we take, 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 and very rarely yeah. do we stop to give back, yeah. at least to, to the degree that we take. Yeah, and that's why I'm... And this is the plug for the Elk Foundation, right, that that you and I are big fans of, is they've improved or conserved habitat on 8 million acres of elk country. Yep. That's what I'm talking about when I say, let's do more, let's do more. It's not like I expect listeners to go out and buy 800 acres and conserve it themselves. (laughs) I I mean, maybe some of our listeners could afford that, but... uh, Eight acres would be a stretch for me here no in Boston. So, but I think thirty-five dollars to join the Elk Foundation is probably not unrealistic. And no. to know that, and you just look at how many elk hunters there are, and if all of the elk hunters were members of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the the power of coming together and and being united in that mission of conserving of increasing not only habitat but access and yeah. it's it's what you always talk about just increasing that 
pie so that our piece of the pie doesn't have to get smaller so we don't have to steal a piece of pie from somebody else. <laughs> we can keep what we want and the pie gets bigger and it's like, you know what, my, I feel like my piece of pie is bigger than yesterday. And Yeah. And that all comes from a pretty small contribution and a small financial sacrifice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I, when the weather is like this and here in, in Montana, tonight, tomorrow and Saturday, it's supposed to get brutal. We're talking true temperatures down to the minus 20 something below, even in central and northeast Montana, minus 30 belows. And then we're supposed to get a big wind on top of that starting tomorrow afternoon. And yeah. I don't know what that's going to do to wind chills, but I just, <laughs> I, I feel, I feel like such a, such a wimp living in my warm, you know, heated house, looking out the window at these elk, trying to make a living off my neighbor's hayfield. But, oh yeah. Wow. No, I'm actually listening to a, an audio book right now from David Goggins. It's called Can't Hurt Me. And this isn't uh, an endorsement for it or anything because there's a lot of language in it. Um, but if you can find a, a clean version of it, there's some good <laughs> motivational <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it, uh, And he talks about that same thing, that we're just so pampered and, and our bodies don't even know what they're capable of because we're so uncomfortable getting out of the comfort zone. Yeah, And we don't push ourselves. We don't allow our bodies to respond to hardship and... That's it, yep. exactly. We're just, it's like, oh, it's minus 30 outside. I'll uh, turn the thermostat up to 72 and go, <laughs> go sit back down under my lighted living room and listen to the 40-mile-an-hour wind blow outside and the snow pile up. And then I'll call the neighbor who has a tractor to come and clear out my driveway. And, you know, <laughs> we, we have, we've, and, you know, to, yeah. to our credit, to some degree, we've, you know, used mm-hmm. our intelligence and grown and, and, made things comfortable but at the same time um the elk haven't got any help they're they're sitting out there in the same way it's been for hundreds and thousands of years for them just facing that 30 mile an hour wind on the backside of a ridge and yeah it's uh it's remarkable and for me you you brought up something there that people have asked me this many times of what what drives you to hunt at this point in my life you know, having been blessed to hunt for the last 45 plus years. And you, one of the things you just mentioned there is I like to force myself to be uncomfortable. And uh, it just, I feel better when I force myself to be uncomfortable and I push through it. And then I'm okay coming back home and sitting on the couch for a, you know, for a snack or whatever and uh hunting is one of those places that forces me to be uncomfortable forces me to feel inferior forces me to feel like i have no control because i can't control the weather i can't control the hunting pressure i can't control what the elk are going to do and i think when you force yourself to be in conditions and situations where you're not the one who has control it builds more knowledge, more determination, more character. Uh, and so w- one of the flip sides of that, I also probably 10, 15 years ago, started forcing myself in my mindset, my reading, what I consume and listen to, to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I go and seek opinions that I, that I know they're going to push me a little bit where I want to send that person an email. Oh, that's a bunch of 
baloney. Uh, and I, I feel benefit from being pushed uh, and being uncomfortable. In the moment that I'm uncomfortable, it's like, what, what, what am I doing here? What, how stupid am I? Uh, but once I get through it, I usually find some benefits that help me in the long term. So Definitely. No, we're in the middle know. of... Uh, that has nothing to do with... <laughs> yes, it does. That's that's hunting right there. And I was just going to say, we're in the middle of editing up uh, the episodes, the final few episodes for Destination Elk. And just this morning, before we jumped on the podcast, I was going through our uh, our backcountry rifle hunt where we took llamas, and it brought back a little bit of the memory. But we're we're climbing three thousand vertical feet every day, and then Ooh. descending that back to camp. And we did that for four straight days. And I was just thinking, I can remember a little bit while we were there. And it was just, you know what, four months ago, three months ago, and not that long ago. I can remember a little bit thinking, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This is steep. (laughs) But as I'm watching these episodes, I'm already planning the next trip in there. And it's like, you know, you, you grow from it. Yeah, it's challenging and it's it's painful sometimes. But that's, it's momentary. I mean, it, it really is that pain. You grow from it. And when you challenge yourself mentally, physically, you know, in any way, you're going to grow from it and you're going to become better. And the next time you go and do it, it's not going to seem as daunting. And, you know, that's what yep. David Goggins says in that book is just, hey, you've got to push your limits and then you're going to expand. And then you have to push your limits again. You can't ever get comfortable. And of course, he's talking, he runs 200 and some miles without stopping, um, does, you know, these ultra, ultra marathons. And he talks about, you know, he went through Navy SEAL training. He went through BUDS three times. And the uh, first time, you know, it was almost at the end and had to leave because of an injury and then you know just another time they canceled it in the middle of of the uh, training and you know he had no control over that so he had end up doing it three times and by the third time he went through it he's like you know i knew it was coming everybody else sitting there panicking they're wide-eyed people are delirious they're (laughs) they're tapping out and he's like i'm just like this is my third time i i'm not quitting i'm not quitting this time so yeah well that I'm sorry, this discussion keeps getting us onto the next rabbit hole, but there's another <laughs> rabbit hole related to that. Uh, Dan and PJ, who are the editors over at the Oak Foundation's Bugle magazine, uh, they were asking me, hey, can you pr- provide another article for us? It's been a while since you wrote something for us. I'm like, well, what, what do you want? And PJ said, I remember one time you were doing a presentation and you said that you think that elk hunting should give you a certificate better than or equivalent to an MBA. I'm like, yeah. He said, we need the article called the Elk Hunting MBA. (laughs) And the point of it was is, and I tell this to so many people about, you know, Randy, because I get the question often, you've built and sold and, and built and sold, you know, some really successful businesses, not like, you know, <laughs> no one's going to have to worry about me being a, a Mark Cuban or, a, you know, Peter Chernin <laughs> or, a, you know, Jeff Bezos or anything like that. But uh, they asked me, uh, uh, wh- where do you think your most valuable business lessons have come from? And when I tell them I think they came from hunting, they look at me like I've lost my mind. But in business, 
you and I both being self-employed for most of our adult lives, we know that in business, you are bringing information or information becomes available to you and you're making decisions quickly. You, you aren't spending three weeks analyzing every little thing. Well, that's, that's a skill I learned in hunting. I'm out there. The wind changes, the weather changes, this happens, that happens, okay? The sun is at this point in the sky. I'm making so many decisions as I'm walking or hiking or glassing that I'm not even aware of how much information I'm processing and making decisions on. Totally. And that kind of decision process is so helpful in business. And the same one I referred earlier about wanting to be uh, vulnerable and not in control of every element. In the business world, I can't control what my competitor does. I can't control what the market, you know, the overall market of where my business operates. I can't control that. I can't control the geoeconomic politics of the world. So I have to learn how to run a business and position my business. It gives me as many options as possible based on all those uncontrollable items. Well, if I look at that, that's, that's almost like my e-scouting plan of what I put together <laughs> when I go elk hunting. Right? I give yep. myself all these options based on what are the unknowns or the uncontrollable items when I'm out there. And then I think successful hunters don't give themselves the option of failure. And failure can be defined in many ways. But in the business world, if you give yourself an out, and you and I have so many acquaintances, I'm sure we could rattle off, who said, yeah, I'm going to do this someday, but I'm not going to quit my day job because, you know, what if this doesn't work out? Well, the real successful people said, I'm quitting my day job and this is going to work. Got to make They don't. Yeah. You're all in. uh, You're committed. Yeah. Yeah. And when when you're hunting, you don't give yourself the option of, well, if the weather's bad, I'm going to go home and watch a football game. Now, the successful hunters say, you know, damn the torpedoes. I'm straight ahead. Here we go. You know? (laughs) Uh, So, I I just, uh, I promised them I'd get them kind of the the talking points of what I, I've i always provided related to that. So if Dan and PJ are listening to this podcast, they're going to be, hey, Randy, we could use yeah. that, that manuscript. You know, you're about a month late on that. Yeah, but, you just jumped all in. Yeah. so <laughs> you, you committed I, yourself. <laughs> again, that, that has nothing to do with elk hunting, quote unquote, advice or tactics. But I think if, if people, no matter whether you're in business, whether you're in hunting, there are certain folks you can look to to say, wow, they're, they're consistently successful in what they do. What are the characteristics or traits that they display or, or mannerisms that they apply to how they operate that allow for that? And I think you'd see some consistencies. Definitely. And, uh, so there you go. So now if everyone quits their day job today and starts a new business and they all fold up they're going to be calling you and i saying hey who's, who's your attorney I, I i would like to file a a civil claim for that bad advice you gave me Newberg. <laughs> just keep in mind randy's one that gave the advice there i just chuckled and nodded 
Yeah, that, that advice is probably worth what they paid for it. Right. Probably worth less than what they paid for it. So, <laughs> so uh, you you want to know the first question I pulled up from our uh, uh, responses, our viewer question or listener questions? I do. This one is almost uh, it's a problem you hope you have. Uh, the person said. Do you ever worry about this when you're applying in multiple states? What if I draw two tags <laughs> in one year? Yes. I don't. Uh, yeah, it's like that's the that's my goal. <laughs> I want to get fired. <laughs> I want to <laughs> be gone so much that they fire me down at the CPA firm. Uh, now, there was a time in my life where I thought that was a concern. And then it happened one year. Uh, and I accommodated my calendar and I know being self-employed, that gave me a whole lot more flexibility than if I worked as an employee. So I, I suspect my, my being self-employed in 2005 made this answer a whole lot easier, but not only was it two tags, it was three. Ooh. I drew, I drew unit 10 early rifle in Arizona I drew Nevada elk, and my son drew the Missouri breaks in Montana. So we had to figure out how to fit three of those hunts in in a season. Uh, yeah. And today's my 32nd anniversary. Uh, and I will say that that was the first time my wife realized that this person she married maybe <laughs> didn't lay all of his cards on the table during the discussion of what our marriage married life would be like <laughs> <clears throat> because I only, I only laid down maybe the three of clubs and said, yeah, I hunt quite a bit. And she knew that, but 2005 was almost me laying down the straight flush here of, Hey darling, uh, <laughs> this is what it's going to be like. Uh, so I think it was a, a, a bigger challenge for me trying to balance fairness with my family than it was worried about fairness with my partners at the CPA firm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that question struck me as as one to throw out there. Uh, you know what I, I think? If, if uh, I just have the same problem. Yeah, and I think we all have a problem. You know, at least <laughs> in theory, there. And for me, it is. I don't ever want to draw. Uh, an Arizona tag and a Nevada tag on the same year. So if I'm yeah. to that point where I know I'm going to draw an Arizona tag, I'm not going to apply for one of those other coveted tags just because I want the time to dedicate to a, a big hunt yeah. like that. If I'm applying for a, a Wyoming general tag and a Montana non-resident combo license and you know, a, a luck of the draw, throw my name in the hat in an Idaho draw and happen to draw all three of them, I'll make it work. But yeah. as soon as I know I'm ready to draw, you know, I've got 17 points in Colorado and 12 or 13 in Arizona. I'm not going to draw those two same hunts or those two hunts on the same year because I want the time to, to do it right yeah. on each of them. So, Well, in my defense, this was back in the day before you could just buy a point in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> so... I drew Nevada. I found that out in May. And at that time, Arizona's elk draw was still in early June. So I called my buddy Jerry Pritchard and say, hey, Jerry, you know, your family lives in Williams, Arizona. Uh, you, you're a, a, a fanatic of Arizona elk hunting. 
what, where should I apply? Uh, you know, please confirm my thought here. I'm thinking I should apply for one of these early rifle tags because I'll never draw. And if I draw a second tag, I could be divorced and I could lose my partners at the CPA firm. He's like, unit 10 early rifle, you'll never draw. <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> that was the curse when he said, you will never draw. It's like, Jerry, I've known you all my life. I should have known better that you just blew up my plan of, of saving my marriage. <laughs> well, then to add that, come July, when the Montana draw results come out, my son, the first year he applies for the Missouri Breaks rifle tag, draws that. I mean, this was just a an alignment of the planets that you just never expect to happen. So it wasn't like I I wanted to have it that way because I would have preferred to just had one of those hunts in a year and really given it, like you said, the effort yeah. that it deserved. I mean, I gave it a great effort, but I did feel super distracted. But, yeah, and know. you don't ever turn back an Arizona tag when you draw it, so. No, especially early rifle the last week of September in Unit 10. You would never, and back in the day, they didn't have a way where you could turn a tag back. I could have turned my Nevada tag back in, but I knew how hard it was to draw in Nevada. So I was like, I'll make this work. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which, which gets to the next question that somebody has, and it's about points only. Back in the day, we couldn't do points only in a lot of these states. And uh, he says, uh, I've been hearing all this information about point creep lately, and I've heard you and others talk about ways to possibly eliminate or, or slow point creep. Do you think it would help if states made applicants actually apply for a hunt and not be able to do the point point only purchase? I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Are you in or are you out? You know? So if you uh, apply, you have to apply for a hunt with your points. Yep. yep. And you could apply for the hardest to draw hunt in the world to build points, but you still have to apply. So everybody that's in the game is in the pool, at least. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, well, I mean, Idaho, you guys don't have a point system, so there's none of this points-only crap. Yeah. New Mexico doesn't have a point system. So you know you're either in or you're out. And uh, I'm trying to think of what other states don't allow you to, to do points only. I think anymore, all the states that have a point system allow you to just buy a point. If I, if my memory serves me well. Yeah, Montana, Wyoming, Oregon. I don't know about Washington. I haven't. Yeah, Colorado. I'm in there. Arizona, Utah, Nevada. Yeah, that'd be an interesting experiment yeah. to see what would happen <clears throat> if uh, if you had to apply. Well, that, I, I wonder what that would do to point creep. Yeah, I like it. Mm. Yeah. I, if nothing else, it would at least force everybody to lay their cards down and say, "This is where, this is where I'm applying," and you could look and see what the relative demand is, yeah. and uh, it would. Uh, I don't know it'd be interesting. I and the person he, he wraps it up by saying, "It just got me thinking a little bit. I'd love to hear what you guys think. I'm only 21 years old, and I'm <laughs> doing my best to build a game plan for elk hunting. So here we are, a couple gray-haired old fogies like you and I, 
we got the 21-year-old coming up with the best idea, maybe. That's great. Tell him to huh. tell him to take it to uh, fishing game agencies and present it. Yeah, because that's all it you takes have. to get things presented, right? You show up and say, "Hey, uh, yeah. I have this idea. Let's do this." Right, and then they'll either say that's within our purview and yes or no, or they'll say that requires legislative action. Take it to your Congress or to your state legislator, uh, and usually that's a train wreck. Even if it's a good idea, by the time you hand it off to a state legislator, you're <laughs> it turns into a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. the 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 downside of those, I think I said this on the last podcast, is the downside. You know, the negative part of politicians is ninety nine percent of them give the rest of them a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> when I say that, people are like, "Well, no, wait, it's uh, the." The old saying is it's 1% give the rest of it. No, not with politicians yeah. and attorneys. <laughs> with politicians and attorneys, it's 99% of them give the rest a bad name. So <laughs> It is political season. On the last podcast, we told folks that we we're going to jump into how they can become an advocate for the cause of hunting and conservation yep. if they're willing to participate in the political process. But I don't know. I, I think... My blood pressure was getting pretty high by the time we wrapped up that podcast. So. I could tell. I could tell. Yeah, should, should we go talk about something not nearly as emotional, like <laughs> wolves? Or I mean, <laughs> wolves is a pretty calm topic. Well, or, you talk about emotion, and I think that that's where a lot of this stuff, I mean, the wolf regulations, you know, you saw in California, they tried outlawing bear hunting bear in, California, in California, and it was all based on emotion. Yeah. You know, the, the quote yeah. that I read was, um, gosh, what did they say? It, it was um, the legislation presented under the guise of inhumane, slaughtered for sport, and needless and unnecessary death was what they put in the bill to ban yeah. hunting. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's emotion. Emotion can't be allowed to dictate wildlife management and, or any, you know, regulation setting. It's, it <clears throat> needs to be yeah. based on fact. Yeah, that would be nice. But politics is the process of picking winners and losers and making sure you're the winner. Yep. <laughs> so, someone sounds, asked me, well, sounds what, fair what, to me. What? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and I, I tell people, you know, political donations are your insurance premiums to make sure that you end up on the winning side, not the losing side. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh i can't believe i started down this path people are yeah. going to say newberg i'd listen to this podcast for some elk hunting advice not uh not, not political rants <laughs> well i'm pretty sure we could probably provide them with some advice on how it affects elk hunting because in your yeah. home state of montana things are getting kind of messed up yeah, and I would say in the last two weeks, the majority of comments we've got from listeners are, hey, what's going on with this Montana bill? They're going to take 60% of the non-resident tags? What What's the deal? And there are multiple, multiple uh, inquiries on the Elk Talk podcast contact us page. Uh, and that's how we get them. They go to the elktalkpodcast.com. 
Is that right? Yep. Elktalkpodcast.com. Uh, Click the contact button and send us an email. Tell, yeah. And so a ton of them right now, I mean a lot of them, uh, are related to this bill. It's Senate Bill 143 in Montana. Uh, and simultaneous to this, the Cal- uh, California bill you talk about, you know, to outlaw bear hunting because supposedly it's a waste of meat and everything else. Uh, <laughs> the bill sponsor didn't realize that in California, you're required to, I think you're required, and most people do, eat the bear. Uh, so it would help if they did a little bit of research before people come forward with this stuff. But yeah. to this bill, Senate Bill 143, uh, our platforms, I mean, you and I have talked about it. Uh, so many people shared this information that it got a groundswell of activity where some of the senators on this committee depends on who you're, who you believe. Uh, they, (laughs) one guy said this weekend, I got 4,000 emails. Well, if you can't stand the heat, get the hell out of the kitchen, pal. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't realize that when you got voted in to be an elected official that you were somehow now off limits. No one's supposed to contact you. And then the other guy, he writes to his hometown newspaper, you know, I got 7,000 emails on this bill. I'm fed up with this. Well, hmm. but would that... Maybe the light bulb should go on that this is a really bad bill then? No. One, what one do they thing. what do both both those guys say I'm voting for it anyhow? Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So what happened with this bill, I, I'll just explain it a little bit, is it comes forward that sixty percent of the in Montana they're called B ten B eleven. And what that means, the B ten B eleven licenses are are elk deer combination license where you get either an elk tag uh, or you get the combination of an elk and deer tag in your your license package or you just want the elk version there's there's also a a deer version uh the deer only version so uh in that process the the sponsor comes forth with this bill that says we want 60% of these tags to go to non-residents who use the service of an outfitter. Well, that that means for the majority of our audience, they get to fight over the remaining 40%. Yeah. And I have no problem with outfitting. I've been on four outfitted hunts. I had a blast. But a couple things come into play is one i'd being a conservative guy i'm not a real big fan of having uh a government action funnel 60 percent of the revenue stream to a small handful of people i just it it goes against what uh uh i don't know it goes against what I think is the way the market should operate. Um, and uh, then probably a bigger issue here is that in 2010, Montana passed a citizen's ballot initiative. This wasn't the, the, the legislature. This was the citizens of the state got to vote 
because prior to this, we had a set number of outfitter-sponsored tags, where if an outfitter sponsored you, you were guaranteed that tag. Well, in 2010, it was called I-161. It was a ballot initiative where the citizens of the state said, we want to get rid of this. <laughs> so now we've got a state legislature 10 years later coming forward saying, you know, we, we, we don't care that you folks voted this out. We know what's best for you. Man. So yeah. who, was, who was it that introduced this? It was a legislator from the Bitterroot Valley. Uh, he, uh, he, he got convinced to carry the bill. Um, and instantly he is getting heat like you can't even believe. I mean, the folks, the non-resident folks, the resident folks are just lighting up the phones, lighting up the emails. And when he comes to present his bill, and so part of this, I think, Maybe we should get into how some of this works. Uh, we The pressure has been so intense that the very first thing he does when he comes to the committee to introduce his bill is he says, Mr. Chairman, uh, I've got an amendment to my bill. Oh, <laughs> it would have been nice if you would have brought that amendment forward so it could have been discussed as part of this hearing. But he didn't. Uh, and the person, uh, the sponsor is uh, Jason Ellsworth. Uh, and so he he instantly throws the fog out there of, we don't know what we're going to amend it down to, but it's become apparent we should probably amend this down from 60%. So they have their whole hearing and everything, and they have a hearing on a bill that no one knows what percentage it's going to end up at. Because the amendment isn't presented at that time. I mean, this is like a a clown show. <laughs> yeah, this is, I wanted to say, yeah, and I'm on vacation trying to watch part of this. And I'm supposed to be uh, with my wife and her family, but I told her, darling, I at least got to go and listen to what the proponents and the sponsor have to say. And I'll get into why that's important. But it's, uh, you know, the old saying, not my circus, not my clowns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this this was it. I, I mean, if you're experienced in this stuff, you're just looking into the screen saying, is this for real? Are, are we going to spend all this time on a hearing on a bill that's going to be amended and we don't even know what the amendment's going to be? But that's what happened. So what they did with it, thanks to all of you non-residents, all of you residents who put the pressure on them, they said, oh, boy, we're getting our clock cleaned here. 60% isn't going to fly. What, what's our next fallback position? Where, where, where could we go that maybe it would turn the heat down a little bit? So they go to 40%. So the sponsor says, I think we'll amend it to 40 to 45%. <laughs> so this morning I get a text that supposedly, and we'll know by this afternoon, the committee meets again this afternoon, that in executive session, I believe it might be. I, d I don't know. Uh, they're going to push it through at 39%. Oh. So so some people would say, hey, victory, we already knocked 21% off it. Well, it's still not a victory. You know, that's the strategy these groups use. Go plant your stake so far out on the fringe that if you got to pull it back, you look like the great compromiser. Yep. BS. 
you're looking <laughs> you're looking like someone who doesn't <laughs> care what the people voted for and you're trying to overturn the will of the people that's totally. the reality so it'll probably come out of that senate committee this afternoon and then it'll go to the full senate and that's a chance to just inundate these people with emails and phone calls and the skids are greased so It'll probably come out of the Senate, and then it'll go over to the Montana House, the House uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Committee. And the skids are greased there, so it'll probably go to the full House floor vote, and the skids are greased there. So it'll probably get through. But every one of these points along the way is a chance to hammer it and hammer it and get it down and get it down and get it down. And then it goes to the governor's desk. And this is where things can really make a difference if you're a non-resident. So uh, as we've seen, and, and this, I, you know, we're using this bill as an example, but if it was a bill in your state of Idaho, uh, this morning I got a call from some guys from Utah about a bill in, in their state, Colorado. I mean, <laughs> this is where the game gets played anymore. And like we said on the last podcast, these groups that want to get their hands on the value that's been created by all this conservation work, all these uh, you know, efforts by our state agencies, by volunteers to build wildlife herds, now people are looking at that saying, how do I get my fingers on some of that? You know, that's a pretty darn valuable asset that the public built there. I'd like some of that to, to benefit me. And so what they do they they don't like fish and game commissions because we as hunters, you know, we've had a lot of really good work building relationships with our fish and game commissions. So they draw they they say let's take this over into a state legislature. Let's make this a political battle because those folks are all volunteers and we're paid lobbyists. You know, if something comes into a committee on a Tuesday afternoon by surprise. They don't find out about it till Monday night. Those folks got work to do. You know, they got businesses to run. They can't just run to the state capitol and and be involved. So then they capitalize on the fact that all of our nonprofit groups that have helped do this advocacy and helped with all this conservation work, well, they're hamstrung. They're, they got constraints on them about what they can do in the political arena. So... Why do we see this trend of every year more and more of our issues getting pulled over into state legislatures? That's why. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. seem right. It doesn't seem right. But it is the reality of what we're dealing with. So yeah. I tell people the hunting, fishing, public access, public land community, we we this is I mean, we're so far behind in up in our game as it relates to that we're this is like when i was in eighth grade we thought we had a really good eighth grade basketball team we went undefeated but the equivalent is if we went and played against you know the la lakers or something <laughs> that, that's that's how bad the 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 scales of of uh qualification is right now but what we do have is the power and voice of the people. 
and the ability to communicate to them where they get 7,000 emails against something and they get 12 people in favor of something. Yep. But it sounds they, like even that, they, they can still oh yeah. ignore it. Yeah, they can. But you do that enough, and you do that enough, and pretty soon you find yourself without a job or without a an elected position. So this is a long game. I mean, this is not one bill or one session. What we are seeing and people are becoming more and more aware of is a trend, a, a change in the landscape of how we need to prepare to be the effective voice for the cause of wild places and wild things. So my point of all this is, as much as we all hate politics, as much as, as a general rule, hunters, anglers, trappers, whoever it is, we're kind of loners. You know, we don't want to share our spots. We, <laughs> we might have one close person that we go and hunt with. Well, guess what? We're going to have to become more of a collaborative group of people. Because if we're just, you know, saying, leave me alone, I don't want to be bothered by this, someday we're going to wake up and it's not going to be there for us. Yep. You'll get your wish. (laughs) Yeah. Not bothered by it. Yeah. So uh, that's just a dynamic that has evolved over the last, I'd say in my life, I've watched it probably the last 20 years, and it's accelerating. So I'm, I'm doing this video series on our YouTube channel called Civics for Hunters. And I know that is kind of corny, but. The idea is to get people in the mindset that we can't think that sending $35 to the Elk Foundation or $100 to the Elk Foundation or to our other favorite hunting or conservation group is going to be the advocacy that we can now go down to the coffee shop and complain about, well, I sent them my dues. What are they doing about this? Yeah. Well, by law, they can't do much. So this requires you to go down to the coffee shop and look over there and say, oh, that guy's a county commissioner. And he's the one who came up with this stupid idea that we shouldn't be able to do conservation easements. I think I'm going to go sit down there and give him an earful. Don't give him an earful. Be polite. <laughs> be professional. You know, don't go off the rails. You, you used a good term earlier, Corey, emotion. There's one, th- there, there's like, if, if you uh, study and read about advocacy, there's a spectrum that starts with passion and ends up over on the curve of emotion. But somewhere along that curve, your passion becomes emotion. And emotion does not create successful advocacy. Passion does, but emotion doesn't. So... Don't when, when you're interacting with these people, don't get emotional. You know, don't say I'm coming there to whoop your butt or you know. <laughs> uh, just, don't threaten. Just how them. big a boy are you? Yeah, there you go. Like R.D. Mercer, <laughs> how big a boy are you? Ain't nothing me to whoop a man. You know, <laughs> so uh, don't do that. Be professional. Be persistent. Nothing scares a politician more than a group of highly informed, highly motivated people of even five. They're like, oh, man, these folks aren't giving up. They're going to make my life miserable. Yep, that's exactly right. Or make your life a little bit painful along the way. And, And politics is the path of least resistance. So if someone says, 
Well, I'm 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 going to ignore seven thousand emails because I've got twelve people who made campaign donations to me. The the likelihood is they're saying, well, I'm not accountable to these seven thousand. I'm only accountable to these twelve. So that gets into some strategy, and I'll use the strategy for this bill as it goes forward. Non-residents, as a general rule, can be disregarded by legislators, but they don't get disregarded by small businesses, by chambers of commerce, stuff like that. So as this bill proceeds, I'm going to start giving non-residents, here are the chambers of commerce. Here, wherever it is you go and buy gas and groceries and bars and, you know, or whatever you do, hotels, email them and tell them, you know, I come every year, every other year, me and my friends, and we stay at your hotel or we eat at your restaurant or we buy gas at your station. And this bill is going to prevent us from doing that. Well, now you really have sway because tourism agencies, chambers of commerce, they disregard the residents because they say, oh, you guys don't spend any money on it. You know, <laughs> Randy doesn't rent hotels in Bozeman, Montana. I have a house. So these groups don't listen to residents, but they're hypersensitive to non-residents. And if you're the governor of any state, the last thing you want is the Chamber of Commerce, the Innkeepers Association, the Bar and Tavern Association, the, the Fuel Jobbers or whatever their industry association is in your state. You don't want those people showing up in your office saying, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. So where we're, we're going to take this is... The non-resident pressure eventually is going to start migrating towards those commerce, those business uh, lobby groups who are very, very receptive, very tuned in to what you non-residents spend here. And then the residents, we will continue to remind these legislators that, one, we're residents, we vote, and we, we understand that at its core, what you're trying to do here is overturn the will of the people to channel a huge amount of a state, uh, whatever you want to call it, state asset revenue stream to a small handful of people to the de detriment of our friends and family who live out of state. So it just it reminds me of Wyoming and their non-resident wilderness law. It's it's just mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. It only benefits a very small group at a yeah. a much larger sacrifice by the other group. And it's mm -hmm. man, it just doesn't seem yeah. right. It doesn't. But if you look at how we get to those places. How they happen is certain groups say, let's find a way, you know, let, let's make us a winner and other people are losers. That's if, if you can, if you only take one thing from this podcast or this part of the discussion of the podcast, it's to understand that when it comes to, we'll use elk hunting in this case, it's resident and non-resident. It's got, it's a big revenue stream that hunting creates. And so the idea of politics is how do I split this out into its little pieces where I can channel it my direction so I'm the winner and I don't really care who the losers are. That's their problem. 
you know, they're not well connected. They don't have a lobbyist up here in the state capitol building shaking hands and buying fancy dinners and drinks. They're just a working stiff. You know, they're the basket of deplorables out there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't want to get overboard on the politics, but that's really what the Montana bill is saying. There are 60% of us who aren't accustomed to standing in line, and we don't want to be standing in line. And all you deplorables, you're that other 40% over there. Hell with you. You get to go stand in line, and maybe you get to hunt here every five or six years. At, at, the, at its absolute basic premise, that's what it is. So is is this something like the the legislator who introduced it, mm-hmm. is it landowners that come to him that, I mean, who's who's really behind it? Who Who's it benefiting? Yes. Is it the Outfitters Board that came, you know, and wants, yeah. uh, and wants welfare? <laughs> yeah, uh, subsidy. Uh, so, uh, if you, I, I pulled out one of my old economics books and, uh, it says a subsidy is a benefit given to an individual business or institution, usually by the government. That's a subsidy, right? Sounds like welfare. (laughs) There you go. Uh, whatever you want to call it. So in this case, you, you, in a, so earlier I said, the reason I, I asked my wife for a one-hour pardon from her family gathering was I, the most important part for me in any legislation is I want to see what the sponsor says when he introduces the bill, he or she, and what the very first group of people who come as proponents to the bill, what they are supporting. What, what, where are they pushing this? And then also, what did they fail to mention? Because the things they fail to mention, those are always their weakest spots, and they hope that that goes silent. So you learn a lot about, to your question of where is the bill coming from, who's pushing it, and why. And the very first two witnesses to this bill were the chairman of the the Montana Outfitter and Guide Association and their executive director. So if the very first two people to come and drive home the points of why this is such a great bill are from a certain industry. That's your key of who was given the pen to write the legislation. And then they backfilled that with a group called United Property Owners of Montana, which is a group that is funded heavily and represents the interest of a lot of non-resident wealthy landowners who are not accustomed to standing in line. I mean, if you can afford a $20 million, $30 million ranch in Montana, the odds are you don't go wait in line down at, you know, Pop's Diner. You know, that's just, that's the reality of the society we live in, is those with the means in all the other parts of our lives. Money will get you to the front of the line. And, I, you know, for people being financially successful, I'm all about it. That's what my CPA life was built around is how do I help people exercise their property rights to make the most amount of money? So I'm I'm all about people getting filthy rich. I, I don't have any problem with that. But I think we could all agree that the hunting space is a place where we've allocated opportunity based on who can you know who's who draws the tag. Yep. And stuff like that. So the very the the first interest groups to stand up there in support of this bill 
was the outfitting industry, which, you know, like they tell me many times is, hey, we're not a conservation group. We're an industry lobby group. So don't be calling us when you need help on a conservation bill. That's not our job. We're here to represent this business, just like, you know, the whoever it might be, the, uh, the, <laughs> I, I can't, the, con- the contractors <laughs> association, you know, they're, they're the, the contractor association, they are there to represent the builders. Yeah, cool. I get that. So they, that that's kind of the bare knuckles of it. You know, the, the outfitting association is an industry lobby group and they are there to represent the interest of their members. So don't get mad about that. Don't take it personal. It's just how the game is being laid out here. So to your question of who's pushing a bill like this, it's in this case, it's the Montana Outfitter and Guide Association representing their members saying, hey, if we get this through, you know, this is a pretty big deal for our clients. Okay. So our job as citizens is to be the resistance and not let there be a path of least resistance. And do, we, do we have a voice similar to the, the voice that the outfitters and guides have? I mean, not collectively. Not collectively? No. We, we, some people would say, well, I gave my money to XYZ Hunting Group. Well, XYZ Hunting Group can't come and do a lot of lobbying on stuff. They'll get in trouble. And if they do, the IRS gets a phone call. Hey, did you know that XYZ Hunting Group was here lobbying on this bill? And now all of a sudden they get examined by the IRS. So that's why these groups love to pull stuff over into the legislative arena. Because to your point, we don't have a lot of consolidated, focused lobbying to counter that. But we do have the mass of people. That's that's one thing we have is the ability to to motivate and activate thousands of grassroots people, and in most instances that <laughs> that sways the outcomes. Yeah, but it doesn't always. So that's why I'm saying you got to look at this as a long game. It isn't just one bill. Every year, every legislative session, this kind of stuff pops up, and it's going to pop up more and more and more. And remember, what was it, four years ago when Jason, uh, Representative Jason Chavitz from Utah had his bill to sell a bunch of public land? Mm-hmm. He got lit up by the hunting community. And he pulled that bill. So the, the, the point of that is, is this is happening and it's going to happen more and it's going to happen more. So get yourself in the mindset that part of being a hunter and part of being a conservationist is probably you're going to have to get yourself familiar with how political processes work and weigh in. Not only familiar with it, but yeah, be active. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how this one shakes out. Uh, you know, already the the fact that they back down from sixty to, I guess it's going to be thirty nine percent. My emails are beeping, so I think it's people calling and texting saying, "Hey, Randy, here's the update." But uh, so right there tells you how how this stuff is uh, how the pressure is coming to bear. Now these groups are hoping the groups supporting this are hoping 
that, they don't end up in a conflict with the innkeepers and the tavern and bartenders association and the chambers of commerce because they know those groups actually have more sway than this group that sponsored this right? was, you know, given the pen. Because here's how it works. Before the legislative session starts in any state, the lobbyists are up there talk, trying to find out who's a friendly, who, who will carry legislation for my industry group. And so they've usually made a lot of political contributions to this person and their friend, and they've helped them get elected. And so they say, hey, it's time to pay some of these political debts. Give us the pen. We want to write a bill that you're going to carry for us. And it's that simple. I, that's we're talking at the federal level or your state level. That's how it really works. That's at its most basic way. That's how it works. So you just need money. That's, you just need yeah. money and become a friendly and yeah, everything's good. So. <laughs> and I, I, I'm always careful about making it sound almost defeatist. Like, well, I don't have the money. How am I going to make a difference? I say it all the time. You and four or five of your friends scare the hell out of a politician. If you show up and you're informed, you're motivated, and you're not giving up. If you're persistent, they're like, you know what? I'm going to have to deal with these people. I can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't ignore them. That's exactly what we want. So don't, don't, don't anyone take from this the fact that you don't have a voice or the fact that you're going to be ineffective. One of the changing dynamics of this process is this bill right here was kind of the first experiment of what's going to be an, an evolving manner by which these types of topics get handled in the world of politics is they were not prepared for 7,000 emails. They were annoyed by 7,000 emails. <laughs> But eventually they have to think about it and say, wow, why am I supporting a bill? Why am I sponsoring a bill that gets 7,000 emails and only 12 people in favor of it? Yeah. They, they, they may have such a huge politi political debt that they have to pay that they plug their nose and vote for it anyhow. But over time, activism at the grassroots level at the volume that we can engage and activate with our digital platforms in the outdoor space is going to make a difference so let's do it that's what i say <laughs> stay tuned get on it yeah so you're yeah, going to be providing can... information on who to contact and yep yeah and uh Say this gets, and it'll take a month or so for this to get through the Senate, through the House, and on the governor's desk. But we have a first-term governor who I know personally, uh, very smart guy. He's going to get that on his desk and say, why is this on my desk? You're asking me to sign a bill that overturns the will of the people? You're asking me to sign a bill that... Uh, all of the small businesses, other than the few that are, you know, benefiting from this bill, are getting hurt by it. Why is this on my desk? <laughs> so he still might sign it, but there's a whole list of other things coming and coming and coming. And then there's the next legislative session. So I've a little history for me is I've been involved in this for the better part of 30 years now. Uh, 
and I've seen how it's happened. I, I feel like the old gray haired guy now that when I first went to Helena in the first legislative session I attended was 1993. I looked around and there were some passionate people there, some conservation leaders that should be on the, on a wall of fame somewhere. Uh, and they were old and gray. And I was looking at them. I'm like, man, those folks, they've seen the battles. They've been through it. And so I, I befriended them. And so many of them were kind to take me under their wing and uh, show me some of the ropes. And I've made my share of mistakes in the process of politics. Uh, I've done and said stupid things or got a little bit, let my passion become emotion a time or two. I've relied on certain people and thought I could trust them only to find out that, man, they saw me as the the guy who just fell off the turnip truck. Look at that Newberg guy. <laughs> Look at that young guy there. Oh, he'll, but let's see if we can sucker him into this. And I walked into some traps. It's like, oh, man, I really feel stupid now. But it was all part of the learning process. So I, I have the benefit of having been involved in this for a long time. And I right now, and this gets a little bit to my enterprise, Corey, not necessarily elk talk podcast but my why is to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause that's what i wake up to do every morning so for 13 years i've been trying to create advocates for the cause of self-guided public land hunting and if you were to write a bill that went against everything that why stands for it's senate bill 143 i mean my why doesn't say anything about resident or non-resident or wealthy or non-wealthy or uh, it's just you know what there's never been a an advocate a formal advocate for the cause of how we hunt there's all kinds of advocates for other styles of hunting and other manners of hunting and i'm good with that you know if you if you have access to private land, knock yourself out. Go and hunt it. You'd be a fool not to. Or if you aren't, you know, if you feel really out of your element, I re- go with a guide or outfitter. I refer multiple people to outfitters every year. I'm not anti-outfitting. I, I mean, it'd be hypocritical for me to go on some guided hunts along the way and then say I'm anti-outfitting. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 there's some of them who run unbelievable operations. They provide a great experience. And, you know, if they get filthy rich, I'm happy for them. I just, you know, I'm not real convinced that the government needs to keep stacking the deck against the non-guided guy or gal. Yep. So, I like. Have it. we just lost? Have we lost Man. every listener now? <laughs> I, I'm, you got me in gay. Like I'm. Yeah, and we've uh, faced it in Idaho a bit. You know, mm-hmm. we've had things you come up have. that that I'll send out an email to my platform and say, "Hey, just send an email in," and within a day or two, it disappears. But the thing that concerns me is how they attach some of these bills to you know as a writer to yeah. something that needs to get passed. A and, budget bill. Yeah, and we've seen it here in Idaho where they basically hold the Fish and Game Department who needs a budget increase to manage game appropriately. They hold that budget increase hostage until they yep. you know, they put their, their little rider on there and say, okay, we'll give you this if you give my rich buddies and my friendlies uh, an opportunity to jump to the front of the line. 
And yeah. that's that's what frustrates me. Yeah. You know, and there's there's some obvious things to legislation like we're talking about here in Montana. They don't like it when you call it a subsidy. <laughs> but in every way, shape, or form, that's what it is. So if you, if you see that when they get up and give their presentation, not one person mentions subsidy, and as quick as an opponent gets up and says subsidy, they all, it's hair on fire, keep calling it a subsidy. Yeah. Because that is what it is in this case, or, or whatever it might, whatever the bill might be. You can quickly identify where their weak spots are. Not a single person in this bill who supported it, who got up, because the proponents get to follow the sponsor. So here's kind of how it works, okay? Chairman calls a hearing, goes through each of the bills on the docket. Whatever bill is next, the sponsor gets up and says, I'm sponsoring this bill. It does this, and here's why. And they, they get more time to to make their sales pitch, for lack of a better way of calling it. So he or she, who sponsors the bill, then goes, sits down, and then all the proponents get to come up. And on this bill, there were so many, they said, keep your comments to two minutes. <laughs> uh, so they get to come up. And then when they're all done, the chairman of the committee says, all right, any opponents come up, give your, your spiel. And you can submit uh, written testimony. There, there's all kinds of ways you can engage in this. Uh, sending emails, phone calls, all that stuff is is a way to engage. But when when you listen to what the proponents give in a bill, and not a single person in this bill mentioned that they were overturning the will of the people. <laughs> Instantly, that's for, for those of us who've been in this game for a while, it's like that's their weakness. That's their flank that they don't want to have to protect. So where do we go? We're going after the weak flank. Yep. So there's strategy and, and, and process to it. Uh, and it's taken me, I would say it took me five years to get over just being mad about it. Oh, that person is a jerk. Well, you know what? They're doing what they they think is best for them. And the process of politics is, like I keep saying, how do I become a winner? And that's why I, in Montana, our legislature meets for 90 days every two years. The joke is, I wish they only met for two days every 90 years. <laughs> because there's, th- there's 3, 000, over 3,000 bills to be heard and either accepted or rejected over 90 days. I did not know that Montana was in such a bad state of affairs that we need 3,000 bills. And hundreds and hundreds of those somehow affect hunting, fishing, public access, and conservation. Wow. And, And we're talking about Montana. But my point of all this is, I don't care where you live. If you live in Florida, if you live in Maine, Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, it doesn't matter. This same process is going on in your state. I can guarantee you it's going on in your state. So I think our job, the purpose of this podcast, is hopefully to give people some awareness that it's going on, give them some hope and some interest in, hey, I think I could make a difference. Because here's the other, if you look at kind of the hierarchy, it's almost like a 
uh, I, I wouldn't call it a team. I'd call it a hierarchy. I bet you just about every listener knows a city council member or a county commissioner or someone who is involved in their chamber of commerce. Right there are points of leverage for these kind of things where you can start making a difference. Because if you're a legislator and you introduce a bill and five county commissioners come and light you up, you're like, uh-oh, this was not a good idea. Who who came up with this dumb bill? <laughs> so don't feel that just because you think you're unconnected politically, you're probably way more connected politically than you realize you are. And, you know, the old saying that 90% of politics is local. Oh. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, so... You're, you you all have a vote. You all have emails. You all have phones. You all have ways to engage and be activated. Take advantage of it because while you're busy making a living, these folks want you to be one of the basket of deplorables while they and their friends can get to the front of the line. That's, that's wrong. <laughs> that's, uh, I, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> basket you know? of deplorables. <laughs> yeah, all you self-guided folks, you know, who who apply in Montana, where you 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 folks, you're the unwashed masses. You know, you, you, you if you can't afford to get in line with us, well, too bad for you. Man. That that's really what this says. Since since when have we operated that way from a standpoint of how we allocate our wildlife resource? Yeah. Down. Well, it's just, it's scary to see that going on. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for me, the hardest, the biggest hurdle I faced when I first started getting involved was, I don't know who to contact. I don't know the difference between yep. a senator, a legislator. I don't know the difference between the House, the floor, you know, yep. the committees, all of those different things. And so I think just some basic education of who who presents it, who votes on it, how can you kill it? Who are the contacts? I mean, if that information's there, we've got an army of, of hunters who oppose it. I just think yep. that most hunters are, um, uh, they don't know where to start. And they yep. don't know who to contact and they feel helpless. And so they yep. do nothing. So I think, you know, what you're yep. doing and what you've always done is so important because, you know, it, you sent out an email or a, a post on Instagram with the contact name of the person to get a hold of for non-residents to get a hold of to oppose this. And it was easy for me to draft a quick email and send to them. And I think if people realized how how easy and how effective that is, uh, more of them would do it for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the reality of this bill is maybe we get it negotiated down to 20%. Or 25%. I don't know. Any bill like this, the principle of it, of taking all the deplorables and putting them in a little basket and all the dudes who can afford, you know, to buy big ranches. Uh, and, and this is just a little history. You know, Montana, it, as the economy got better, it got harder and harder to draw this general Montana deer or deer elk combo tag. Uh well, the last two years, now it wasn't 100% draw. So that's when all the pressure started. And yep. so the outfitting industry says, well, this is, a, this is nothing more than a lottery. Who can build a business around a lottery system? 
This is not a lottery. This is a preference point system. You know who's going to draw yep. by how many points it takes. So I sat on Montana's committee that came up with our bonus point system in 1999 and 2000. Mean. I mean, there were representatives from the outfitting industry. There were, I mean, uh, uh, you name it, ho- hospitality industries. And uh, we looked at it and said, everyone agreed. You know, the Montana preference point system for the non-residents is, is working great. Let's just focus on bonus points for limited entry tags. So that's kind of what we focused on. But for years, this system was supposedly working great. Wyoming outfitters, all the non-residents in Wyoming are on a preference point system. It's not the end of the world in Wyoming for their outfitters. In Colorado, they're on a preference point system. So how could you say that it's a lottery when you can go and look at how many points it takes to draw the tag? That's not a lottery. It's he or she with the most points gets the tag. So don't sit here and tell me your your business model is subject to the whims of good fortune or bad fortune. It's subject to knowing how the system works and being able to count to two because it only takes two <laughs> points to draw the tag in Montana. Uh, you know, we're, we're we're not even talking long division or fractions here. And we're that's talking can you can you count to two? And that's what's so frustrating is you can you can draw a general tag. These outfitters, if they have the customers already, mm-hmm. you're gonna you, you might lose five percent a year as far as who could hunt with you but the next year you're going to gain all of those plus the 95 percent that you have from that year it's just it's ludicrous to think that they need that kind of a handout you know if you if you now say 39 percent of the tags are issued only if you have an outfitter that's growing that outfitter's business without them having to do anything they're just automatically going to get more uh more revenue and that's yeah man i wish i wish i had somebody doing that for my business coming in and saying (laughs) hey you know what we want to introduce this for you because we want to see you make more money and not have to work for it you know what Corey? i i'm gonna find somebody to introduce a bill in in congress maybe that says if you have an elk tag 60% 60% of you have to take Corey's University of Elk Hunting course. Oh, now we're talking. <laughs> I, I, mean, that's, I support that. that yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I laugh and people are like, that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It, it is. was meant for a joke, but that's what's being asked here. So here's how the Wyoming outfitters do it. Wyoming outfitters must be good at math because if – when my brother-in-law said, I want to go leave Minnesota and go hunt elk in Wyoming, he only had one point. And the outfitter said, you know, it takes three. So I'm going to help you build your points to the level of three. And then I'm going to book you for a hunt in, you know, two years down the road. So the outfitter is like, you know, if I get in touch with these people before they get their point levels and I help them build their points, I'm building security for next year's bookings and the year after's bookings. Yep. But somehow in Montana, that logic, the math gets completely different when you come to Montana. So if you're, if, if you are out trying to book clients that have zero points, 
Think about that. Yeah. You know it takes two. Why are you spending all your time count building your business for that year on the people with zero points? Yep. That that would be like being a realtor and going and trying to sell homes to the bum who lives under the overpass. <laughs> Guess what? He's not qualified for a mortgage. Why are you spending all your time trying to sell him a home? Yep. Same thing here. So one of the topics they kept bringing up is, oh, we're, we're to the, you know, our businesses are subject to the whims of a lottery. No, they are not. We have a preference point system intact because people said we need consistency and predictability. Well, that's what a preference point system provides. So don't go try sell your home or your hunt to the hobo living down at the railroad depot. <laughs> Find somebody with two points. But here's the other part in Montana. Even at that, it, if you had zero or one point last year, because you, so many tags get returned when folks don't draw their limited entry tag, even the folks with one point had a 60-some percent, like high 60% chance of drawing. And the folks with zero point, 60, 60 or 64 percent of them drew. So <laughs> it's like, really? You're going to try? I, I, I guess because I'm a CPA, I can consider myself maybe the Charlie Daniels of the spreadsheet here and, and <laughs> math. You know, math hasn't been a real complicated issue for me. But I did not think counting to two was a. Uh, a kind of the hurdle between a successful business and an unsuccessful business. It shouldn't be. That's all they need to do is say, who's got two points? Those are the people we'll book this year. Yep. And we'll, if we need some fallbacks, we can go to the folks with zero and one point and 60 some, two thirds of them are going to draw. So, yeah. Man, I don't know that oh. I've ever seen you get your hackles up quite like that. <sighs> I've only had one cup of coffee this morning, Corey. <laughs> and it's I, I want people to understand, this is not anti-outfitting. No, no. I have so many friends in the outfitting space. And I, when I got home from vacation last week, I had three emails from from followers saying, hey, this doesn't really, <laughs> this this is new to me. Can you put me in touch with a good outfitter? Yep. I know this person it runs a great camp. Go see them. And they're usually booked up because they run a great camp. So this would be some fallback people. I, I refer dozens of people to outfitters every year. And I encourage people to go use an outfitter if you're not comfortable. Because you and I both know there's a lot of logistics for the green person to come out and do what we do. Absolutely. And there's no no stigma at all of saying, hey, I want to go with an outfitter the first few times to learn the ropes. Heck yeah. It's a great idea. So, yeah. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> Anyhow, but I we had so many, we had the majority of our comments in the last two weeks have been related to this bill. So we really, you know, we're not, we're not going to be like those legislators who say, I got 7,000 emails and I'm going to disregard them all. We got, you know, quite a few dozen emails and most of them were related to that. So we're listening to them and we're going to, we had to talk about it. Yep. On both both in the specific sense and in the general sense. So very good. No, and there's like you said, there's there's the bear one in Cal, uh, in California. It got shut down because how many people signed the petition there? Two hundred and seventy-seven thousand or something. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, 27,000. 27,000 signed yeah, the petition. Um, and now in Utah, there's a, a bill, HB 295, to mm. ban big game baiting and the use of trail cameras. Hmm. So, and I yeah, mean, it's, some, there's, there's some, you know, even within the hunting community, I think you're going to get a divide between right. using bait for big game hunting and people are going to yep. say, you know what? Yeah, you don't need to bait for deer and elk, but bear, yeah, maybe you do. And some people are going to say you don't need to bait at all. And some people are going to say, yeah. you know, use bait for everything. I think what's important to understand here is how easy it is for somebody who disagrees with us to go and introduce a bill that could take all of that away from us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Montana, we have a bill now to add nine days, I think it is, to our season for muzzleloaders. <laughs> right now, you can use a muzzleloader for five weeks, but they want a specific muzzleloader only season. And that's, I have nothing, I want a muzzleloader. But you go to the sponsor and say, where, where, where's the pressure coming from that we haven't killed enough elk in the six weeks of archery and the five weeks of rifle. And then the shoulder seasons for, I don't know. I think there's about three days out of the season they, in Montana. The regulations that should just say, which days you can't kill a cow elk yeah, rather than which days are open because we can kill cow elk more than six months out of the year. But my point is here comes a bill that should have went through the commission. The commission understands all this stuff of how this fits into the elk management plan. Where do we have, you know, damage complaints or where do we have harvest levels that are shrinking, which means maybe we have a problem with our elk herd. So that should have been a bill that went before, or not even a bill, should have been an action requested of our Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Commission. Yep. But what do they do? They're like, well, we'll get our clock cleaned over there. We don't, we don't want to get our teeth handed to us. Let's take it to this friendly legislator we have. And what happens now? We've got hunters pitted against hunters, which uh, to, to, to the bill you referred to, I think, in, was it Utah? Mm-hmm. That's, that's another bad outcome is they love using this legislative process to pit hunters against hunters. Yep. And this, this muzzleloader bill in Montana is just another example of that it's like kill this bill if it's got merit run it over to the commission but that doesn't uh, get there (laughs) i'm gonna gonna come home it's my anniversary and my wife's gonna give me a big hug and she's gonna say man you feel really tense today and then she's gonna go get you a bowl of ice cream and a root beer right and root beer, yeah. And I'm going <laughs> to sit on the couch. I'll have a smile like a ripple on a slop pail, man. I'll, I'll be walking around tomorrow with a chocolate dot on the end of my nose from me licking the chocolate out of the bowl. And to get the, she, she's got these deep bowls. And to get get all of the chocolate out of there, I got to push my face in further. And my nose always hits the bottom. And I end up with a chocolate dot on the end of my nose. And she sometimes doesn't even tell me about it. I'm walking around town with a brown dot on the end of my nose. Does she give you a hard time for for licking the bowl? She used to. She's given up on it now. See, my wife still gives me a hard time. I do the same thing. I'm like, if I'm going to eat ice cream, I'm going to get every last drop of it. Darn right. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear you do it. And I'm glad to hear that your wife has quit giving you a hard time. That gives me hope. Yeah. I'll keep doing it. Corey, we, we have kept people for an hour and 20 some minutes listening to me jump up and down 
talk about politics. I I apologize. Isn't that Larry the Cable Guy? Oh, I apologize. Uh, uh, I think it's hope. important. I, I think it really well, is from an educational standpoint. I hope that yeah. the listeners see the value and I hope that they feel empowered and motivated to be a yep. part of, of shutting these things down when they need to be shut down. Yeah, that's that's the takeaway I want people to go to is, you know what, it's going to require over the your future years, understanding how the process works. And my job is to help people know how the process works. But it also is going to take you to make a phone call, send an email, maybe talk to somebody you know, who's influential in your community or in your state. And you're doing it for the betterment of wild places and wild things and those who will come after us. Yeah. So but those who will not come after us in the sense of attack us, but those who will follow in our footsteps. So, yeah. So that's the takeaway. All that hour and 20 minutes we just summarized in two sentences. And that's, hey. <laughs> Dang. I just, I'm, I, uh, I've never seen you worked up like that. So it's. Oh, you've never seen me in Helena then. Yeah. Yeah, when this bill goes over to the house, uh, me and a camera guy, we're going to the hearing because our part of our series of civics for hunters. I'm going to go there and say, "This is what you do, folks. This is how you get prepared. You stand up. You don't rant and rave. You, you know, you give your peace, and you know, off you go." Yep. So that's awesome. But well, thanks for doing that. The the other caveat is railing about a problem on Facebook does not constitute advocacy. <laughs> okay. You just cross you just upset a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Cross that off your list as being an effective form of advocacy. Okay. Making a post and say, hey, share this for the awareness part is helpful. But to get out there and argue and try to change somebody's mind on Facebook. Have you ever seen anyone's mind be changed on a Facebook argument? Nope, and I, so here's, I tell my my own kids all the time, don't argue with your mom and dad. You've never once convinced us to change our mind when we tell you that you need to do something. If we have a discussion, yes, we're open-minded, but if we say, hey, it's your turn to do the dishes, you need to do the dishes, don't argue that your sister didn't do them last week or that it's not fair or anything. It's your responsibility. You go and do it. And arguing with us has never changed the outcome. And I tell my basketball players the same thing. Don't even say a thing to the ref in all my years of playing basketball in coaching basketball. I have never once seen a ref change a call that he made because we argued with it. They, They might come up after the game and say, you know what? You were right on that one. But they aren't going to change it in the middle of the game. And especially if we're up by 20 or down by 20, don't say a word to the ref. Their their decision is not going to change the outcome of that game. So don't don't say it. Yeah. Well, Corey, before I find another rabbit hole to crawl down, let's let them go. (laughs) Let's do it. And we will be back talking about elk-specific topics in the next one. I know we've got some uh, application deadlines that are coming up in the next few weeks. So we've got good stuff, more good stuff that might be uh, more focused on elk specifically. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, folks. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Corey. Yep. We'll catch you on the next one.